morning, as we continue this message series, Worthy is the Lamb, uh, we're going to experience just a, a slight shift in, in focus. Um, as we've been going through this series over the past three weeks, the emphasis has almost entirely been on the fact that we are, are unworthy to stand before God. We are unworthy of his presence. But then Jesus, as our worthy lamb, he is the one who makes us worthy. We now can stand before our God, holy and blameless in his sight. And certainly that is still going to be the, the main emphasis of what we are talking about today. And yet there, there's kind of an added emphasis. What now? Like, this is the status, this is the calling that Jesus has given us. What does that mean for my life now? What does it mean to live as a worthy member of his kingdom? And so to kind of kick things off here, I just have a simple question for you. Who is somebody that you would consider to be great? Some of you might point to the, the star athlete on your favorite sports team as a great person, right? They're the ones that have reached the, the pinnacle of their profession. They're the ones that are interviewed after the big game that literally millions of people sometimes are listening to. Others of you might point out some uh, big shot business tycoon, somebody who has earned a great amount of money for themselves, somebody who has maybe also had a, a tremendous impact on our lives and on the lives of, our, of the people of our world through their innovations, through their business dealings. You might take a, a little bit of a different road in answering that question. Maybe you would point to one of the great people in world history, maybe a, a world leader or ruler or somebody whose ideas have helped to, to, to shift culture in a totally different direction. Maybe even somebody who has the word great in the name that we call them today, right? Somebody like Alexander the Great, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great. I still think that there are probably a lot of you that would go take this in an, a, an entirely different direction altogether. You would point out somebody who has had a great impact on your life, somebody who has had a positive influence that helped to shape and mold you into the person that you are today. Right? These are all people that we might consider great, and it certainly is not an exhaustive list of the types of people that we might consider great. Well, in our lesson from Matthew today, we are going to see that Jesus' disciples, his followers who had been with him now for about three years, most of them, that they thought they understood what greatness was, what it meant, how it was acquired, how it would change their lives. And yet Jesus, in teaching them, takes their ideas of greatness and just totally turns them upside down, showing them that how we often view greatness very different from how God sees great. Now, in these verses, it's worth noting that Jesus is coming into the home stretch. Okay? The culmination of his earthly ministry is at hand, and it is going to take place when he and his followers enter into Jerusalem in the coming days. And that's kind of where we're picking everything up here, at Matthew 20, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, it's true there were a lot of people who considered Jesus to be a great person. When you can heal the sick and raise the dead, when you can make a meal for thousands out of just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, when you can drive out demons and calm a storm with a single word, then people will probably think you're pretty great too. But there were also a lot of people who saw Jesus as a great enemy. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the highly respected religious teachers of the people, they saw Jesus as a threat to their own greatness. Thus, they also saw him as a threat to be eliminated. And Jesus knew what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Jesus knew everything that he was very voluntarily walking into as he went up to that city. And he also wanted his disciples to know what lay in store. He wanted them to be prepared for what they would see and what they would experience. He wanted them to know that his path was one that went through a lot of suffering and went through humiliation. And for them, it was one that would run through a lot of sorrow as they would see what happened to him. Jesus also wanted them to know that it was a path that did not end there, but it was one that ultimately would end in exaltation and in joy. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus had a number of times now explained in, in, in these kinds of details, very straightforward language, exactly what was going to happen, his disciples still struggled with this deep misunderstanding about who Je- this misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. And also a great misunderstanding of what his kingdom was all about. And it's that misunderstanding that we now see an example of in these later verses, in these next verses. Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, so Zebedee's sons, these are the disciples James and John, by the way. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, the the symbolism of right hand, left hand, that's one that extends beyond Scripture, even one that maybe we even still use today. What's she asking here? She wants her sons, James and John, to be Jesus number two and number three, right? They're asking Jesus, we want to be the top dogs in this kingdom that you're going to establish below you, of course. Now, Jesus had just told his disciples in the previous chapter, all 12 of them, that they would receive positions of honor in his kingdom. In fact, he said that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet, as is often the case for those who receive a taste of greatness, it wasn't quite enough for James and John, right? Top 12, let's see if we can wheedle Jesus into top one and top two out of those 12 disciples, right? There was a misunderstanding here, though a misunderstanding about what greatness really meant. And it wasn't just James and John that harbored this misunderstanding. They were just the most forward of the disciples about it. The rest of their hearts were also wrestling with this as well, and we're going to see how that plays out in just a little bit. Let's move on with our verses for right now and Jesus' response. You don't know what you are asking. 
Jesus said to them, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, if we are going to really understand everything that is going on here, there is a a phrase in what Jesus says here that we absolutely cannot just skip over. And it's this idea of drinking the cup. This is a, a symbol, it's a metaphor that is used many, many times in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, which would have been, you know, the Bible for Jesus and his disciples at that time. That was God's revealed word for them. Sometimes the, the symbol is simply shortened to that idea of the cup. And it is a symbol for essentially receiving whatever it is that God has in store for you. And so when we look through the passages of Scripture, there are really two different cups that you might receive from the hand of God. First, there is the cup that you want. Okay? It's the cup of blessing or the cup of joy. The cup that is filled with all of the good things that God has in store for his righteous people. It's the cup that was maybe most notably written about in Psalm 23, verse 5, by King David, when he said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So there's the cup of blessing. And then there's the cup that you want absolutely nothing to do with. And that's the cup which Job spoke of here when he said, Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. That other cup is that cup of wrath, the cup of God's God's just justice, God's just judgment over wickedness and, and rebellion and all ungodliness. So you've got the two cups, cup of blessing, cup of wrath. Which one is Jesus speaking of here? Well, as I said before, with the disciples and, and their hearts, we need to move on. Okay? We, need to, we need to look at the rest of the verses because it starts to make all of this much clearer for us. Okay? Let's move on with verse 24 for now. When the ten, so 12 disciples minus James and John, okay, ten, the math checks out. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Not just James and John, but all of those disciples had a fundamental misunderstanding about what true greatness meant. Notice that Jesus does not chastise them simply for seeking greatness. In fact, this is something that Jesus would have all of his people strive for. The question is this. Are you thinking of greatness in worldly terms? Or are you thinking of greatness according to God's term? When we think about greatness in worldly terms, we see the, the great one, 
which we want to be ourselves. We see the great one right at the center of everything. Everybody else is around them, giving them their attention, giving them their respect, giving you their focus, giving you their gifts, their strength, whatever it is. Maybe we could also picture it like a pyramid, right? A pyramid sees the great person on top with everybody else below supporting them, uplifting them, right? Their praise, their adoration magnifies my ego and my name. Their hard work increases my own bank account. Their dedication, their loyalty strengthens or maybe even increases the borders of my own little kingdom or empire or whatever it is. Greatness, as God sees it though, quite a bit different than this, isn't it? Jesus says that true greatness means being a servant, even more than that, being a slave. And when Mark records this story, he adds that little detail, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, the word slave is a little bit of a hot-button word in our culture because of our own country's um, unpleasant history in the past with slavery. But, but what's Jesus getting at here? What's at the heart of this? What's at the heart of that idea of being a slave? It's this, that a slave's life is not lived in devotion to him or herself. A slave does not live in order to build their own great name, in order to build their own power, in order to build their own anything, really. Rather, a slave lives in dedicated and even in an obligated service to another. And so if I am at the center of everything, it's not because everybody's attention is on me or because I want them to be focused on me. It's because I know that I am surrounded by people who need my strength, who need my service. Or if we're using that picture of the pyramid again, I'm not on top, I'm on bottom. And I am supporting and uplifting everybody else with my gifts, with my talents, with my strength. Now, I generally think that most of us are willing to serve. In fact, some of you might even really enjoy serving. When there is some kind of volunteer opportunity, you might be the very first person to put your name on the, on the sign-up sheet. And yet it tends to be a service and a serving that is done according to our own terms and our own limits that we place on it. Generally, too, I'd say that we're willing to serve, but our service is limited to those that we think are worth it, those that we think are deserving of that service. And so you're probably more than happy to serve your kids or your spouse. And you're willing to, to give up your own time, maybe even for the people that are worshiping around you, right? It's easy to be generous and kind to a close friend or to a good neighbor, right? And yet even service to these people can have its limits, right? For example, we've all heard of the parent who wouldn't so much as serve their child a cup of coffee anymore because that child did something in the past to embarrass them, and now they think that their child isn't really worth their time and worth their attention anymore. I'm more than happy to bring a loaf of 
Hannah's freshly baked bread to the neighbor across the street who brings his snowblower over to help me out when the plow has left two and a half feet at the end of my driveway of snow, two and a half feet of snow, by the way. Not so much maybe the neighbor, though, who grouses at me because I haven't cleared my sidewalks fast enough or well enough to his tastes. Yet Jesus here speaks of a service to all without exceptions, without limitations. A service even for those who hold to very different views and values than you might. A service, yes, Jesus even says, to those who have made you into their enemy. Jesus expects that devoted service, doesn't he? Why? I mean, what's the point? What's the goal of it? Well, we, we need to read our last verse today because it's here in this last verse that, that everything finally really kind of becomes clear. Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the Greek word that we translate in English as that little phrase, just as, in the Greek it almost served the function of an equal sign. That there are two similar, alike things on either side of that word. Okay, so what's Jesus saying? He's saying, your service is to be like this. Like that of the Son of Man who serves to this extent that he even gives his life as a ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is the price. It is the payment that must be made in order to buy somebody back from captivity, right? Maybe in a movie we see the, the, the kidnappers nab the, the high-profile individual and they leave the ransom note, right? A note in which they say, we need X amount of money and then we will let so-and-so go unharmed. Well, Jesus here says that he has come to be a ransom. He's going up to Jerusalem, and he finally explains why it is to be this ransom. You see, just like James and John, just like those other disciples, we can become so consumed with our worldly ideas of greatness and go running around after that, that we fail to see the truth about ourselves, which is that we aren't so great and strong. Because sin has left us weak and helpless. And even if I could gather the world around at my feet in authority over them, and I received their praise and their accolades every single day of my life, that honor and that glory that authority would still be as nothing compared to that of the Almighty God who sits in heaven, a God who says he takes it as a very real offense against himself when we go running around after our own greatness and our own ideas of glory over his. It means that I am not worthy of greatness. I'm not even worthy of goodness. I'm worthy of nothing better than being a slave. 
lured by sin, captured by Satan, held in bondage and in service to him, and destined to drink his cup right along with him. You remember those two cups from before, the cup of blessing and the cup of wrath? Which one do I deserve to drink? I deserve to drink the cup of wrath. God's punishment for my arrogance, for my wickedness, for my evil. And that's the cup that I will drink. Unless somebody steps in. Unless somebody whose life is great enough to pay that ransom price for me, somebody who is willing and able to drink the cup of wrath that I deserve in my place to liberate me from my bondage. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem knowing full well what would happen to him there. That he would not just drink down the wrath of the chief priests and Pharisees. No, that he was going to drink down the far more terrible cup of God's wrath over sin. What James and John, what his disciples, what you and me deserved, Jesus lifted that cup to his lips as he hung on his cross. And he drank it all the way down to the very last dregs so that you and I will never have to know what that even tastes like. But didn't Jesus tell James and John that, that they would drink his cup? Yes, he did. And they would. But not the cup of wrath. That belonged to us. He drank the cup that we deserve. That means that now we get to drink that cup of joy, the cup of blessing that he deserved. Every good thing from our God's hands, not just in this life. No, we get to drink of that forever at his side and in his glory in heaven. That's what brings us to our, our key point this morning. Our ransom drank the cup of wrath so that we now drink the cup of joy. His suffering, his humiliation, means your and my eternal exalt. It's important to note, though, that Jesus here, that, that these verses are primarily what? They're primarily a teaching section for his disciples. Jesus is showing them what it means to live a worthy life as one of his ransomed people. And so here's the, the message in all of it. Jesus serving and his goal now sets the pattern for our serving and our goal. You see, no longer do I need to go running around after my ideas of what will make me great according to the world's terms and according to our earth's standards. I already have blessing every blessing from the hand of God, and I get to drink of that forever. What more or better could I possibly hope to scratch together for myself here in this life and in this world? Here's what all of this means for us. It, it, it sets us free. It sets us free because we have this heavenly joy. It means that we now live our lives on earth as a ransom 
in that pattern of Jesus himself. Now, I'm not saying that I can pay for a single sin of a single person. It means, though, that we now live our lives as Christ did himself, serving as he did, pouring ourselves out however we can, for whomever we can. And to what goal, to what purpose? That by our serving, we might lift them up to eternal life by connecting them with the ransom, with that worthy Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who drank that cup of wrath not just for my sins and for yours, but for theirs too, and who even now holds that cup of blessing out to them. He is ready and waiting for them to drink. After all, if you are concerned with greatness, there is no greater or more lasting impact you can have than this. To be God's instrument in serving everlasting life to another. Amen.